This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Thanks for joining us. And now here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. In all of our podcasts, we speak to people, caregivers, and loved ones living with some of the rarest conditions. Our goal is to really understand what it's like to live with a rare disease. This is part one of a two-part series about ADPKD, or autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease a genetic condition where many cysts develop in the kidneys, which almost always results in kidney failure. I'm Mandy Rorick from the patient advocacy team at BridgeBio, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy. Hi, David. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. David, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with Anne and Mike. Anne lives with ADPKD. We are also really excited because our producer, Amy Brooks, is going to join us on the podcast. Hi, Amy. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for including me today. Awesome. Amy also lives with ADPKD, and she personally knows Mike and Ann, so she'll chime in with some questions and comments as well. But first, David speaks with Dr. Rachel Groth so we can get a clearer picture of what ADPKD is and how it affects people. Thanks, Mandy. Rachel, thank you for joining us on Unrare. Rachel is a scientist who's the vice president of research at BridgeBio, and we're happy to have her explain ADPKD. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, David. Great to be here. ADPKD, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. I'm going to take a stab at saying what that means just by decoding the name. Autosomal dominant means that it's a genetic condition. So one parent who has ADPKD is required for a person to develop this condition. That is correct. And polycystic kidney disease means that the kidneys develop many cysts. That is correct as well. Okay. So now I'm going to stop guessing or (laughs) decoding and ask you to explain to us uh, what we know about it and what, what we should know about it. Yeah, great. Well, as you mentioned, this is a genetic disease in which fluid-filled sacs called cysts grow in the kidney in an uncontrolled manner. And this causes the kidneys to grow larger and larger, which impairs kidney function and ultimately leads to kidney failure. Symptoms caused by cyst formation in the kidneys include high blood pressure, pain on the sides of the body between the last rib and the hip Um, and that's called flank pain, blood in the urine, and progressively poorer and poorer function of the the kidneys. And when you reach end-stage kidney disease, your only options are dialysis or kidney transplant. Hmm. So the, the cysts cause a number of problems and eventually account for the kidneys really to cease operating. And that's why people need dialysis, which is an artificial method of filtering the blood or a kidney transplant, which is a significant surgery. So it would be great to have other types of treatment that are not quite as difficult. If someone is not aware of a relative having had ADPKD, what are the first signs or symptoms 
typically it is high blood pressure combined with events such as uh, kidney stones, urinary tract infections, and even feeling that the, the kidneys are enlarged in your abdomen. And then it's imaging and family history that really lead to the, the firm diagnosis. Does it take a long time for the diagnosis to be made? I mean, all of those things do occur to people who don't have ADBKD. Especially if there isn't a clear family history, uh, there can definitely be some lags in diagnosis. And this is also typically a slowly progressive disease. There are two types of ADPKD. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. So ADPKD is typically caused by mutations in one of two genes, PKD1 or PKD2. Those with mutations in PKD1 develop in-stage renal disease um, by 54 years of age, typically. And this is about 20 years earlier than those with mutations in PKD2. Um, People who have PKD2, the transplant surgery is more serious at that age as well. That's correct. Yeah more challenging. I understand that not everyone who develops ADPKD has a positive family history for this condition. What do scientists like you think happens that people who have not had a relative with ADPKD develop it? The mutations in PKD1 or PKD2 are relatively prevalent, but there are about 10% in which there is no family history of disease. And instead, the disease appears to arise from spontaneous mutations. Mm. So those can sort of explain um, that lack of family history for some. Oh, interesting. So for some people, it's a new mutation. And if 10%, that's a pretty high number. So pretty significant. Yeah, this is the most common inherited renal disease. Mm -hmm. Are there other complications that are involved with ADPKD? There are. So some individuals actually suffer from liver cysts, pancreatic cysts, cerebral aneurysms, and heart valve defects. And unfortunately, it's, it's impossible for us to predict who will get those complications and when. So we know that people diagnosed with ADPKD usually will either receive dialysis or kidney transplant or perhaps both. And are there any other current treatments? Yes, um, there is an FDA-approved therapy to slow ADPKD progression, Mm. but unfortunately it comes with really serious side effects, Mm. including serious liver injury. Um, So often patients are simply treated with medications to really manage the painful symptoms of ADPKD until eventual renal transplant. There's a need for better medications and hopefully one day, alternatives to kidney transplants and dialysis. Yes. When someone has ADPKD, and we would presume that it's a genetic condition, and they receive a transplanted kidney, is the new kidney eventually going to show signs of cysts and develop ADPKD as well? No, it should not, because the cells that you're getting that make up the kidney from the transplant um, actually don't have the genetic mutation. And this is something caused by the mutation being within the kidney cells themselves. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, thank you, Rachel. This is a really challenging condition with difficult options for survival, and it's been very helpful to have your background on ADPKD. Thank you so much, David.
I am so happy to welcome Anne and Mike to the podcast. Anne is living with ADPKD. Mike is her partner and main supporter, and they're lovely people. Anne, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, David. So let's go way, way back to where this all began. And I guess I'd like to know, even before any symptoms occurred, and whether members of your family that had kidney problems or kidney disease or other medical issues, where does the story really begin? Yeah, it started when I was very young. Uh, I lost my dad when I was six years old to PKD. Really? He had a kidney transplant in 1974, um, and he received a kidney from his brother, mm-hmm. my uncle. Back then, to my understanding, they didn't have the immunosuppressants that they have now. And so I guess Mm -hmm. the kidney transplant was a success in the beginning, but then it started to go downhill. Mm -hmm. He was on dialysis for four years prior to receiving the transplant. From the pictures and from what I remember, because I was young, he was very thin and he was very weak. The transplant went well, but I guess about... I'm not even sure how long it was afterwards. It started to reject Mm. and he had to go back on dialysis. And then he passed away shortly thereafter. So sorry to hear that. And so I always knew that, you know, we had this disease in our family that had been passed down, but it wasn't until I was much older, until I was in my 20s, that someone suggested that I get tested. Mm. I had never been tested. Mm -hmm. So I have a five brothers and sisters and out of the, out of the six of us three of us inherited pkd from my dad um and just for clarification and amy you want to say something yeah yeah thanks david i i just find that totally fascinating because the statistics are that 50 percent of offspring will inherit the gene yeah yeah three out of six so unfortunately statistics were spot on for your family and yeah so just To clarify, and so we really understand, when you say that you were tested and your siblings were tested, the test was for polycystic kidney disease, but it was known that it was already in your family. Yeah. I I remember receiving an ultrasound and they saw cysts on my kidney. That's the test that I received. Yeah. I guess I just need to ask what that was like to A, find out that you also had PKD after losing your dad and also that you had siblings who had it. I guess I was I was 25 when I when I found out I had a new a new primary care physician and they suggested I get tested. I'm not sure why I was never tested prior to that. My mom didn't talk about it a lot after my father died. We didn't really talk about PKD and what happened to my dad or you know where he got it. I believe he got it from his father as well. But we never talked about it when I was a kid and we never talked about it when I was an adult. Yeah. And it wasn't until suggestion of my doctor that I got tested. And when I found out that I had it, I started, you know, reading up on it because I didn't know much about it. And I talked to my mom and I, I said, well, who else has it? And and none of my brothers or sisters had been tested. I think I was the first one to get tested. You were very young when you lost your father. That in itself, losing a parent for any reason has got to be so difficult. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the day that my mother came home from the hospital, the day that my father died and she told me, I I said, okay, can I go out and play now? You know, I was so young. I didn't even understand fully um, the whole, the whole thing. You know, I, yeah. it was the first time I had lost anybody. Yeah. I remember the following year I lost a, an aunt, my aunt, Anne, who oh, I was yeah. named after. Yeah. And when my mother told me my aunt Anne died, 
I cried and cried and cried because I, you know, I think I understood, you know, the loss now, but, but I was the youngest of six. So I, yeah, at six yeah. and my oldest brother at the time was 19 when yeah. my father passed away. So I think mm-hmm. it hit the older kids harder than it hit the younger. Yeah, young children, I don't think, have a clear sense that death is permanent. And sometimes you hear, you tell a young child that someone has died and they'll say, well, how long are they going to be dead? It's just not something that is understandable at a very young age. So can I go out and play? Isn't that surprising? It also speaks to how devastating this condition could be to a family. Yes. Yes, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My father ran a contracting business, so she had to go to work. We always had a a meal on the table. We always had a a warm house. We always had all those things that we needed. You know, growing Mm -hmm. up, she made she really cared for us all, and it was always family first. Those are tough. Those are tough things. Yeah, no, that's okay. So this is another sad story. So I have three sisters and two brothers. My two brothers also have. PKD. Oh. I lost a brother last oh. year. Uh, he was on dialysis and he needed a transplant and he he got COVID. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he didn't make oh. it. But my, my oldest brother is doing very well. He had a transplant the year before me. He had his first kidney transplant in 2010 and he got the kidney from his wife, which was wonderful. And he's doing great. He's actually in Italy right now on a, on a cruise with my other sister and her husband. So they're having a great time. He's doing really well. So your two brothers, it just shows the two kind of paths that someone who's living with PKD could take. And your older brother passed away uh due to complications from COVID, but probably not independent from being a transplant recipient, right? And having immunosuppression, is that? Because he was on dialysis, his body was definitely compromised. And Had he also had a transplant or just was on dialysis? No, he was on the waiting list for one. He'd been on the waiting list for three years, three and almost three and oh, a half gosh. years. Yeah, so yeah. he was on dialysis for oh. that period of time. So sorry. So how old was he when he died? He was 59. So that was in 2021. Wow. Really, really difficult uh, losing him. Wow. So and just going back, your dad died of PKD. Not much was talked about it. Of course, you were very young. And at some point, you had a sharp general practitioner who, understanding your family history, said maybe you should get tested. Yes. And you were tested with ultrasound, and it showed uh, cysts. Is that right? In your kidney? Yes, there were cysts on both the left and the right kidney, numerous cysts, but my kidney function was normal at the time. Uh Yeah, it was uh, keeping an eye on blood pressure. I remember her telling me that we had to make sure that my blood pressure was always controlled. Uh And what were your thoughts? Again, you knew that you had lost your dad to this, so to be diagnosed with the same condition. I knew that there was improvement since 1974. Even though he had passed away, I knew that most likely someone that had kidney disease nowadays could either be on dialysis or have a transplant and that there were medications and things. So I didn't, I didn't feel as devastated. I, I didn't feel like that was a death sentence or anything. I just knew that, that it was going to affect my life and, and then I, it would be something I would have to live with yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it, it was disappointing to hear. Oh, yeah. Now, um, were you together with Mike yet at this point? No, not yet. I came on the scene a few years later after I she see. had been diagnosed. And, you uh-huh. know, so I get the whole story that, hey, I have this disease, you know, 
uh, polycystic kidney disease and it's no big deal. My kidney functions hundred percent. She's I'm like, Oh, okay, great. So you fast forward a few years later and she's being followed by her nephrologist and um, she goes to the doctor like one week and comes home. And I said, how'd it go? She goes, it's great. I got a hundred percent kidney function. So I said, Oh, that's wonderful. Well, a couple of days later when her, her lab work comes in, the doctor called just to go over the results. And I said, oh, hey, how are you, Dr. J? And he goes, oh, great. I was just calling to check in with Ann. I just want to go over her lab results. I go, she told me that at the appointment, you said she had 100% kidney function. He started laughing. He goes, she doesn't have 100% kidney function. Her kidney function's down under 50%, but she's good. And I was like, what? And then it kind of hit me. And so I'm doing the math in my head. Her dad dies at 46. She's in her 30s. And I'm like starting to panic. Now I need to know everything there is to know about polycystic kidney disease because I don't want to lose her at 46. And so that was the trigger, I think, when we really started to pay attention and then focus on her kidney function. And as the cysts grew and she got more and more cysts on the kidneys, obviously her function started to to nosedive. And then when it it got down to like the 30% range and under 30, that's when the alarms like started going off. So now I was like, no big deal. I'll just give her a kidney because that's what I would do. So we actually went in for the initial testing. We were in there for about five minutes and they were just like, yeah, we're all set here because I had been diagnosed at that point with prehypertension. They were like, yeah, we're all set. You are not going to be a donor. I'm like, oh, I don't care. I, I'll sign a waiver. I don't care. So that was a that was a big setback for me personally, because now here it was, I was trying to mm-hmm. solve the problem and I couldn't. Now we have to find a living donor. Yeah. So Mike, you, you at first thought that you could handle this by donating a kidney until you learned that because of prehypertension that made you not a candidate, you couldn't even talk them into doing it. I just want to, again, go back to one other thing. And when you were tested and diagnosed with PKD, did you already have children? I had one daughter at the time, my oldest, and Mike and I met when I was 28. I was diagnosed when I was 25. And then when we married, we had two more kids. So that was at age 32 and 35. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mike, when you found out that you weren't a good match for Anne, tell us what you did next. (laughs) So cool. It's kind of like an obsession. Here I am sitting on the sidelines and I have to do something. Yeah. Her kidney function is is nosediving. She's, she managed it phenomenally. I mean, she would get up in the morning, she would go to the gym, she'd come home, take a nap, get up, she'd do some work. I'd yeah. pick the kids up from school. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that became like literally an obsession. And I knew nothing about marketing at the time, but boy, did I learn a lot. Like, cause when you put out things on, on social media, if you put something ridiculously stupid, like. I drove down the Mass Pike with no pants, yada, yada, yada. People laugh. They're like, oh, that's so funny. You're like, 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 share, 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 all these things. Mm. The engagement mm-hmm. was um, yeah. incredible. I put on there, my wife has kidney disease and she needs a kidney transplant. Everybody avoided it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to like it. They were afraid like I was going to shame them into donating a kidney or something. And I start doing all this research on <laughs> how am I going to do this? And, and we did find a guy in Chicago who... Uh, leads the um, Living Kidney Donor Network. His name's Harvey Mysell. And, and he was like, oh, you have to, a kidney campaign spelled with two, you know, two Ks. You, you get the word out. That was his biggest thing. Just get the word out. Whether you go to church, you get a flyer made up, um, use social media. Oh, wow. Somebody had told me about Twitter. 
And they said, oh, you're going to become friends with Donnie Wahlberg. And I'm like, how am I going to become friends with Donnie Wahlberg? And they're like, well, he just found a, a fan, a kidney. And so then I became obsessed with getting in touch with Donnie Wahlberg so that he could retweet our story in, in hopes to get some traction. And he did. So <laughs> it was uh, it was a pretty amazing, I, I look, it was a very surreal event searching for a living donor. And, um, and in the end, we did find a donor. Wow. These are all Massachusetts references. The Mass Pike is a Massachusetts turnpike goes across the state. And Donnie Wahlberg, everyone in Massachusetts knows him because he was on New Kids <laughs> on the Block. He's an actor, and he and his family started a hamburger joint called Wahlburgers. So I'd like to hear more about the donor, but what do people consider when they are thinking about donating one of their kidneys? It isn't a small thing. Yeah. Well, when Mike first put out the messages on Facebook and Twitter, you know, he had his, his van lettered and he had, we had signs on local restaurants and things and this whole campaign to find me a kidney. So more and more people started finding out about it. And a lot of people responded in Facebook and, and, you know, sent their hearts mm -hmm. and their prayers. And then people started reaching out really? to me privately really? to say that they were considering donating or if, if I bumped into someone in the grocery store or wherever, they would say something. And immediately, some people that I really didn't know very well would say, oh, I'll get tested. And I said, oh, wow, you will? I mean, that's amazing. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't even expect most people to say that, but they, they yeah. would. But I think it was more of a nervous reaction. Some people would were saying that they were going to get tested and that they were going to do what they could. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they and never then they did didn't. and they never... Yeah, and yeah. then they avoided me. You know, it was. It, it was yeah, yeah, purely yeah. emotional response. Yeah. Like, so yeah. if you care about yeah. somebody or you know them, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. what can I do to help? And you haven't yeah. given it one bit of thought. You haven't yeah. gone home and talked to your spouse. You haven't gone home and talked to your other family members. Because as soon as you do, they're going to go, what are you, crazy? Why would you want to go under a major surgery and give up one of your organs? And, you know, and everybody will come up with a, a million different reasons. So. That was the driving force behind knowing um, once we've realized that, that there mm -hmm. were people that just, I get it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They care about her. They're going to offer to do these things. But then when they talk yeah. to other people, it was all, like, no deal. You're not doing this. So that was the goal was to just get the story out and let the donor mm -hmm. come forward. Yeah, it's a big decision for someone. And of course, a very important decision for someone who needs a transplant who is relying on the courage and generosity of someone to donate a kidney. So how was the donor found? What came next? Dan, would you take us through that? Yeah, so with all of the social media posts, which I think went on for, I don't know, six months maybe? Yeah, at least. People were following our story, and there were people that were genuinely concerned and cared. And a friend of, of ours who lives out in Colorado had been following the story and reading it and thinking about it and kind of wrapping her head around it. Unbeknownst to us, talked to her husband about it and wanted to come forward and really wanted to get tested. So she she went and got tested her, you know, for her blood type to find out what that was, which was a match. She contacted Michael and said, I have the right blood type and I've already talked to my husband and I'm going to go get tested at, at mass gen. And she did, she followed through on it and um, it is, it was amazing. And it, at that very same time, 
I, the guy that I had mentioned earlier that works in the um, the Living Kidney Donor Network had been reached out to by a student filmmaker who happened to be a former NFL football player who was, wanted to do a documentary on organ donation. So we were supposed to be a five-minute segment of kidney donation. And it turned out, you know, he called me up and I said, hey, look, our donor's coming in for testing. Get on a plane. Get out here. I'll get you access. And mm-hmm. so he ended up doing the whole documentary on really? us, uh, 15 minutes. It's called Search in the, in the Gift really? by John Tate. Really? So uh, the friend comes from Colorado to Mass General Hospital to get tested, right? And this, this is someone you knew very well, or were, were you surprised? What, what was the relationship like? She was a good friend of ours. Like, and she's originally from Massachusetts and she had moved out to California and lived out there for a while. And then, you know, ended up, she was married before got divorced mm-hmm. and then got remarried and we'd always kept in touch. So like once oh, yeah. a month yeah. she'd be calling, uh-huh. Hey, how's everything going? La la la. You know, how's she came to our wedding and yeah. you know, it was yeah. just, it was one of those things that you just, it was a good friend that you keep in touch with, mm-hmm. but never in a million years did I think that she would be the one that would have come oh, forward. Well. She was actually Michael's ex-wife's <laughs> best friend. <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny because they were best friends and then Michael got divorced and then Jennifer got divorced and they lost touch, the two best friends. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was going through my divorce, that, <laughs> the, the, the backstory here is that when I was going through my divorce, she was living in California and she was like my rock. I would call her all the time. Of course, after seven, when the rates went down and uh, it was well, back in the day, you had to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh-huh. and so I would be like a blubbering, you know, oh, my God, my life, la, la, la. And she's like, don't worry, you'll get through this. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward six months later, she's going through or maybe a year later, she's going through some stuff. And she's like, I just want to come home. And I said, you know what? I'm going to send you money for a plane ticket in your son for you guys to come home, like on the red eye to visit your family. I said, you don't, you don't have to pay me back, but the only thing I want, you have to come have dinner with my new girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> so they, she actually came to Ann's house. We had like, I think we had a spaghetti dinner or something. It was something simple. And that's when we got to meet, you know, we, you know, we all, we got to meet. And then of course, she, you know, she ended up coming home for our wedding and she ended up getting remarried and, mm. Really. Good nice, friends. nice. It's a, it's a good sign about a man that whose uh, ex-wife's close friend remains a friend. Yeah. So. Well, she was the maid of honor in my first wedding, so it's a little <laughs> awkward when people bring that up. They're like, "Okay." Even when with Mass General, they're like, "All right." So, what's the connection here? Like the the psychologist, you know how like when Sandra had to go, well, referring to Amy Brooks's donor. Um, oh yeah, it's not just their physical condition; they check everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's any living kidney donor gets grilled by the psychologist. Social, yeah. They're like, what's your motive here? And so they're like, what's your connection? Like they wanted to make sure she wasn't doing this to try to win me over. <laughs> right, right. You know, I had a boyfriend at the time of my transplant and he wanted to be my donor. But guess what? They didn't pass him. <laughs> <laughs> Failed miserably, huh? Yep, he did. It's a good thing because we're not together now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> Your friend comes, gets tested in Mass General. They ask, you know, what her motivation is if she's trying to steal your husband. <laughs> so the donor was tested and she 
was found to be a good match for you, Anne. Is that correct? Yes. She she didn't have any of the antigen matches, but she had the right blood type and she was healthy and checked out completely Uh on all Mm -hmm. the testing. What does it mean that she didn't have the antigen matches? What is... I'll let you talk about that. So there's um, so there's six antigens that they're looking for to see if they'll match. First off, they have to make sure that the blood it's a negative cross match, meaning the blood won't fight each other when the you know the new kidney is put in. And then there's like a panel of these six antigens if they can match up. So an identical twin would have six out of six antigen matches. Mm-hmm. So when you get put on the kidney list, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to match up those antigens. And the more antigens you have, the better the match there is. However, with a living kidney donor, a zero antigen match is is just as good as a deceased donor that has four or five antigen matches. I see. So, and just to make sure I understand, so I know an antigen is something that the immune system reacts to. Is that what it is? There are characteristics of kidneys that are make it either known or unknown to the immune system. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's that is in a nutshell basically what it okay. is. And I'm not a medical expert. I just know that there's this panel that yeah. we were kind of focused on like, okay, let's find out how many matches there are. And then they're like, well, it's a zero antigen yeah. match. And I was like, wait, time out. Yeah. This isn't going to work. Yeah. Right. And they go, no. And then they explain yeah. that yeah. Uh, to us that how the zero antigen match from a living donor mm-hmm. is just as good as the ones that have the higher yeah. antigen matches yeah. with the deceased. Okay. Donor. Okay. So, and you find out that the friend is a acceptable donor. And what was the process of getting the transplant like? And what was it like to receive the kidney from your friend? Once she passed all the tests, I mean, it happened really fast. They immediately scheduled us for the transplant. So she, she was there in October. It was maybe three weeks later. We scheduled the transplant mm-hmm. for November 8th. This was in 2011. So we came in for pre-op testing. We went together to the hospital. We had our testing. Mm -hmm. Um, The day of the transplant, it kept us very separate. Everything is done very confidentially. So I don't even think we were on the same floor, right? No. Yeah. They, you know, wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't let us be in the same room after the surgery or anything. There was protocols, but we were able to, you know, talk on the phone, but we were in the same hospital, but we weren't together, you know? Yeah. And the surgery for each of you? Yeah, the surgery for each of us went just as planned, went very well. I mean, there was delays. The day of the surgery, there was a delay for someone. There was someone that needed a liver transplant. So we were, you know, there at 6 a.m. and waited Uh, till uh, the end of the day, I think. But um, yeah, it was a long day, but, but everything went very well with the transplant itself. Jennifer did great. I did great. She flew home in three days um, and I was home in four, uh, I think. I mean, you're, you're, they kick you to the curb pretty fast. <laughs> uh, and you went home with, uh, with your friend's kidney. Yes. Yep. Aptly named Bean. Yes. So we, we had, you know, because yeah. we had this following Bean. on social media <laughs> and everybody was kind of like, you know, in order to get people to interact, we were like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're considering naming the new kidney. What should we name it? And. We ended up defaulting to allow Jennifer or her, mm-hmm. you know, the donor with her family to make the decision. So they named the new kidney Bean, you know, the one that got transplanted to Anne, and then she kept her old one, Old Bean. Bean and Old Bean. Hmm. Well, um, let me just say that 
I am really appreciative of your friend, Jennifer, and that is such an act of generosity and friendship. Yeah, she is one of a kind. She really is. It, it, it's talking to so many people through that process. I was so sick, and I know so many people had come forward with good intention, but for one reason or another, weren't able to to follow up. And it's a it's a big decision, yeah. and it's it's something that has to be shared with your family. And you know, I was just amazed that she came through for me. I was just so happy because it was time. I, I was supposed to be fitted for the fistula. I was supposed to be going on dialysis oh, yeah. and they had recommended that and I had kept pushing mm. that off. They let me push it off a little bit. And really she came in right at the nick of time and then she saved me from all of that. This donor is truly one of a kind. She is a hero of humility and kindness she gave the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. There is so much more to this story, so let's pause here and wrap up the first part of our two-part series about ADPKD with Ann and Mike. To hear the conclusion of the story, click on On Rare ADPKD Part 2 wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Mandy Rorick, and this is On Rare. On Rare.